in this Advent season, we look forward to the two comings of Christ, but in reverse order. So in the last two weeks of Advent, we prepare ourselves to celebrate the first coming of Christ, the Incarnation, when the Son of God snuck into the world in Bethlehem. That was his gentle coming, which we celebrate with quiet songs at Christmas. In these first two weeks of Advent, we look forward to his second coming, when he'll come in glory and power, hearkened by angels. And just as we believe that his first coming really happened, that he was really born, that the Son of God really became man in Bethlehem, that it wasn't just a pious fable to inspire tender feelings, but that he was really born, we also believe that he will really come again. The doctrine of the second coming wasn't invented by fundamentalists. In fact, it was one of Christ's most persistent teachings, especially towards the end of his life. And we proclaim it every Sunday in the Creed. We believe that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And we really believe that it will happen. Christ will come, and he'll bring history to a close. He'll judge the living and the dead, and he'll establish his eternal kingdom. This second coming is what Christ is primarily speaking about in tonight's gospel when he exhorts us to be vigilant, to stay awake, because we know neither the day nor the hour when he'll come. But there's also a secondary application of this parable, and that is to the moment when he'll bring our own personal history to a close, the moment of our death. We live in a society where death is hidden away from us. We hide people away, maybe not intentionally, but in nursing homes, in hospitals. It used to be that in most of the world and for most of history, people would die in their own homes. And so it was something that was part of life. You saw it. It was part of the, uh, a reality that was in our faces. Well, that's not the case anymore. Now, it tends to be hidden away. The great Russian author Leo Tolstoy wrote an incredible short book called The Death of Ivan Illich. And it's a reflection on life and death. So I have to confess that I'm going to spoil the ending, but it's kind of right there in the title. Ivan Illich dies. The story begins in Ivan Illich's youth. He was an intelligent young man, applied himself to his studies, and he was generally well-liked by his companions. When he graduated from law school, he, had a, he began a promising career as a lawyer and then a judge and began to climb the ranks of social life. But as he climbed, he let the voice of his conscience be slowly replaced by just a sense of propriety, like what the dignified, well-to-do people around him considered right and wrong. And the voice of his own heart became silent. He married a pretty young woman whom everyone said was a good match for him. And he began married life content until she got pregnant. And when she got pregnant, at least according to his appreciation, she suddenly became moody and demanding and irascible. But he was determined not to let this ruin his happy life. So he just spent less and less time at home 
and threw himself more and more into his work. As he continued to rise through the ranks of Russian society, his family life became more miserable. Until finally, at age 45, he fell ill. And that illness is what brought about his conversion. There were three steps to his conversion. The first was that he came to terms with the fact that he was dying. Everyone around him wanted to deny the fact. Or they would make it a question of the health of his kidney. So the doctor would come to him and speak to him about his kidney. His wife would come and say, well, let's see how your kidney's doing. And at one point he realized, and this is a quote, he said, it's not a question of a kidney, but of life and death. Yes, life was there, and now it's going. Going, and I can't hold on to it. Yes, why deceive myself? For the first time, he confronts the fact that he's going to die. Not the general truth that all humans die at some point, but that he was going to die. That his own life was slipping away. And that brings him to a second step towards his conversion, which is to realize that the life that he had been living up to that point was not real life. He looks back on his life of social climbing and of creature comforts, and he says, quote, all of it was simply not the real thing. It was not the real thing. And that leads him to a third and final step of his conversion. He chooses to love. It comes so late that he's too weak to express it in words. His wife and his son are there by his bedside as he's dying. And his heart turns. And he he repents of never having loved, never having risked, never having given anything to anyone. And he even forgives his wife and his family who have been so callous to him during his sickness. But it's too late for him to express it. He's too feeble at that point. Well, the story is a, is a story of true redemption. I mean, it's hopeful that such a wretched, empty man can be redeemed at the last moment of his life. But it's also sad because he wasted almost his entire life. His own heart was changed in the end, but it was too late for him to touch the heart of another. Today, Jesus cries, wake up. Wake up. Don't wait until you're on your deathbed. Don't waste your life on something that's not the real thing. Because your time on earth is short and you don't know when it will end. Psalm 90 says, 70 are the sum of our years, or 80, if we are strong. They pass quickly and then we are gone. And then the psalm continues, Teach us to count our days aright, that we may gain wisdom of heart. Recognizing the shortness of our life makes us wise because we don't waste our life on something that's not the real thing. So what is the real thing? The real thing is a life lived with purpose. In the parable, Jesus assigns a task to each servant. The parable says, The master leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his work, 
You have a mission from the Lord, a task that only you can fulfill, that he's entrusted to you and to no one else. Do you know what it is? Do you wake up in the morning eager to set your hands to the task? At an important crossroads in his life, St. John Henry Newman discovered his mission, and he wrote this prayer. Oh my God, you have created me to do you some definite service. You have committed some work to me that you have not committed to another. I have my mission. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. I will trust you, whatever, wherever I am. If I'm in sickness, my sickness may serve you. If I'm in perplexity, my perplexity may serve you. You do nothing in vain. You know what you are about. Though friends be taken away, though I feel desolate, though my spirits sink, Though my future is hidden from me, yet I will trust you, for you know what you are about. I ask not so much to see as to be used. Through Christ our Lord, amen. He says, you have created me to do you some definite service. There are concrete people whose lives and salvation depend on you knowing your mission and carrying it out. No one else will do it for you, and no one else can. A mother to a newborn infant knows this. When, when the child starts to cry, well, there's only one person in the house that can feed it. And the same is true in the world. Although we might not hear their cries, when we don't live out the mission entrusted to Christ by us, someone goes hungry. Someone's missing a blessing. Someone's missing a word of encouragement. Someone's missing some instruction or some friendship or some consolation because that was meant to come through us. It was destined for that person through you. In the short years that the Lord has given you, He has assigned a task for you to complete. Do you know what it is? When we discover it and embrace it, we begin to live with passion and urgency. We no longer need six cups of coffee to get us through the day. We're no longer living from weekend to weekend or from vacation to vacation. We're not working, looking forward to our retirement. I don't mean to say that there won't be some moments of, of drudgery because there will be times when we'll just have to put our heads down and push through. That's part of life. But our default will be a constant, quiet passion that urges us to purposeful action. There's a dangerous counterfeit to purposefulness, and that is busyness. From a distance, they look alike, but in reality, they're opposites. In fact, it's often the case that we make ourselves busy to hide our lack of purpose. So we run around from place to place, fire off a thousand emails a day, and we're constantly complaining of how busy we are or bragging about it. And really, we're just hiding without knowing it, without deceiving anyone. But we're hiding a lack of purpose. 
Last year, I remember overhearing a conversation between two students at American University as they were passing by on campus. And one said to the other, I think it was a junior maybe speaking to a, a freshman, kind of showing her the ropes. And she said, I'm so busy and anxious that my stomach hurts all the time. But you get used to it. And I thought, that's such bad advice. That's no way to live. That's not the urgency that Christ calls us to in the gospel. There are no prizes for being busy. Christ lived with incredible intensity. He accomplished his whole mission in three years. He taught everything he would teach. He formed the disciples who would carry on his mission after he left. He suffered, he died, and he rose again in the span of three years. And yet we don't find him running frantically from one place to the next. He stopped and spoke to people one-on-one -on -one along the way. He shared meals with his disciples. He spent long hours in prayer. He rested by the Sea of Galilee. He didn't have to rush because he knew what he was about. He lived a life of purpose. So you might ask, how can I live a life of purpose if I don't know what my purpose is? Ask the Lord. Spend some time in prayer and ask him. Lord, what is my mission in life? What is the task that you've entrusted to me and no one else? And then listen to him. Advent is meant to be a quiet time, a time of listening. So listen for his response. For most of us, it won't be far off. It will have something to do with what we're already doing. You know, if you're a student, at least at this moment in life, it should have something to do with studying. So in most cases, it will have to do with the people who are right in front of you, the job that you already have, the neighborhood you already live in, the circle of friends and acquaintances that surround you. What's called for is not a radical change of direction. That could be but most often, it's a matter of recognizing that the task before you is from the Lord and embracing it. One thing is certain, that wherever you are and whatever your task, you're called to love. Our personal mission is just a personalization of the, the great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. That's the real thing. Love is the real thing. And a life without love could go on eternally, and it would never amount to anything. But if we love, that's real life. That's the real thing. So what is the task that the Lord has entrusted to you? What's the real thing? For you. Our time is short, so let's not waste time going through the motions or living for the sake of appearances. Let's not waste time on vain ambitions and petty desires. Let's love and risk and sacrifice and serve until we die or the Lord comes.